All audiologists are familiar with counseling as it's a critical component for the success of our patients and their families. We often discuss challenging and difficult topics like a new diagnosis of hearing loss, a worsened severity for an adult or a child, signs of dementia, or the heartbreaking conversations of our pediatric patients who are sometimes facing things like bullying in school. For our patients with more complex mental conditions, though, these conversations can have many layers and may involve many other professionals. While it may happen less often, audiologists might find themselves providing care to children receiving palliative care services. How can we ensure we're providing the care that the best care possible for these children? Today's guests are going to help us better understand that. Dr. Holly Tedegger-Girth is a pediatric audiologist and clinical leader at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. She is the coordinator of the inpatient audiology program and provides diagnostic, diagnostic services for the critically ill and medically complex inpatient population. Dr. Jacinto Fregoso is a pediatric audiologist at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio as well. He provides diagnostic and rehabilitative audiologic services to children of all ages. His interests include implantable hearing devices, electrophysiology, and clinical and translational research. Jacinto and Holly, I'm so glad you're here. I read your amazing article in the Hearing Journal, and I just knew this would be a fantastic topic for us to talk about. So thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having us. Yes, thank you so much. This is very exciting. This is going to be a lot of fun, um, but also kind of sad. So I don't know how best, you know, emotionally to approach this subject because I feel like you guys have a lot of expertise here, but this is clearly a really sensitive, you know, delicate area of clinical care. Uh, just to start things off, I'm kind of curious how you each would define palliative care and kind of how you landed in a position where that's a part of your clinical expertise. Um, I'll, I'll take it, Haas. <laughs> Um, so I work, prim um, I work primarily in the inpatient population. Um, I spend a lot of time in the NICU or on the HEMOC units, and um, it's not uncommon for us to run into patients who are receiving palliative care um, during, their, during their stay because of whatever medical condition um, they have. So um, to me, palliative care is just, it's a kind of multidisciplinary care that is used to um, support the patient's um, kind of to support their outcome. So support what they, um, what their goals of care are, what what their what is important to them. So sometimes when we have really complicated medical conditions, um, their goals um, might be very different than um, uh, otherwise healthy patient. So palliative care comes in to listen to the family to learn what's important to them, to talk about their goals of care, and to see how they can work with the um, general medical team to advocate for those families. Um, so like Holly was saying, um, she deals primarily with that inpatient population, which has a whole host of issues other than your typical um, clinic patients. And this whole project kind of got started um, when I was a fourth year extern at Nationwide. Um, and I would rotate with Holly um, on the inpatient unit and it was actually a clinical poster I created um, in conjunction with Holly and Ursula and the palliative care team at Nationwide um, that was presented at Eddie and AAA in 2020. Um, and it's it's been kind of great because we've been really sharing a lot of knowledge that um, a lot of audiologists really um, don't really know about, especially within palliative care and hospice care. Absolutely. So could you, would one of you mind breaking that down? I think it's probably pretty commonly confused uh, hospice care and palliative care, what the differences are between those two, because I know they're not the same thing, but it sounds like the details can often get a little bit confused there. Yeah, definitely. Um, palliative care is really offered to any patient who had a serious 
life-limiting uh, chronic illness or had a tragic medical event. Um, so really anybody who needs any assistance with care coordination, social emotional support, um, as well as a uh, big part of it is pain management with palliative care as well. Um, and that palliative care can follow a child from a few weeks to their lifetime, um, as opposed to hospice care. Hospice care is actually an insurance benefit um, where it was agreed upon by two physicians that um, the life expectancy of that patient is six months or less. Gotcha. I see. So it sounds like palliative care, you you might be in it for the long haul there. Hospice care is going to be a little bit more short term. Um, and I see why palliative care, if it's if we don't know if it's indefinite, we're going to need a lot of professionals on board. Um, I'm curious, uh, maybe this question starts with you, Holly. Um, were there Was there any special training you had maybe in graduate school or anything like that to prepare you for this kind of a role or maybe um, either clinical skills or just more like counseling skills you might have had that drew you into providing this kind of care? Um, I would say no, not at all. <laughs> I think that um, this is like a real, <laughs> I think this is a really niche part of audiology um, inpatient care alone, but also working with these really complicated medically complex patients. So um, I've been at Nationwide for about seven years and I was at Children's Healthcare Atlanta for three years inpatient before that. So I've just had a really long kind of run of working in an inpatient setting where we see these more complex patients. And so I would run into a situation where something popped up with palliative care or, um, you know, family's goals um, that didn't align with maybe what we would typically do audiologically. Um, and it, and I just kind of kept an eye on it. And then it would happen again and again. And so um, when Haas was our fourth year student, um, we decided to kind of sit down with one of our palliative care doctors and talk about it a little bit more openly to see what are you guys doing and what as audiologists can we be doing to kind of support the family as they go through these really challenging times. Yeah, that's that's great to know. And uh, hey, uh, small world, I did my fourth year at CHOA as well. So oh. I got to spend a little bit of time in that CIRU seeing some of those inpatients uh, at Eggleston and um, uh, awesome. Scottish Rains. So that's really cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so that's great. So I, I definitely see where some of those skills come in. That's really awesome. Um, and how you could have been drawn into that kind of a role. And yeah, I guess you're right that we don't really have any training on conversations like this. Um, Jacinto, how about you? What drew you into especially providing care for these kinds of patients? Um, I guess definitely just putting being put in that environment. Um, from the get-go, I always wanted to do pediatrics. Um, and I was very fortunate to do my fourth year at Nationwide Children's because, um, like Holly was saying, this is a very niche in patient audiology. You really don't come across too often. They'll usually have one or two audiologists um, doing it. Um, and that's really where I got the bulk of, my, one, my experience and kind of learning from Holly. You can say Holly was definitely my mentor because um, I was with her when I had like my first ANSD case in the NICU, like things like that, where you're dealing with those ter <laughs> terminally ill children. Um, and there, I don't sure. think there, there's not enough schooling to really teach you how to have those conversations or to really to prepare you to have those conversations. Absolutely. So that's that's a great segue because I'm curious, kind of what does this role actually look like? So um, I mean, I know it can probably span a lot of different things. It can look like a lot of different things. But when you think of like your most uh, typical um, version of providing palliative care, where does your role kind of play into that usually? Um, I think that we are a partner with palliative care. Um, 
I wouldn't consider myself providing um, palliative care, but we're definitely a, a member of that team when it comes to talking about the goals um, for this patient, um, what their family wants, what the patient wants. Um, so obviously um, speech and language, hearing, those are all really kind of core quality of life um, areas. And so when we're talking about a patient who um, has a life limiting condition, um, it's important to, to think about what are our goals with hearing? What are our goals with speech and language? What are our goals with feeding? And so the palliative care team does an amazing job of having these really challenging conversations with the families, um, but we also act as a partner to them. So if we talk to a family and, and are able to kind of um, figure out their goals audiologically, we can pass it on to the palliative care team um, who can kind of set that up in their plan of care. Um, or if they have a really close relationship with the palliative care doctor and the palliative care doctor learns like, this family's only goal is to take this baby home. They just want to get out of here as soon as possible. They can mm -hmm. pass that on to us. So um, it's kind of more of a, a joint effort. I see. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and it probably involves a lot of different professionals. And I guess that it, it kind of changes depending on who you're communicating with. But I guess that fundamentally, it's about the family's goals um, in terms of communication. And sometimes when communication is not the priority at that point, it's just getting home and getting out of that hospital. I definitely see how that can come into play. Yeah, it can definitely be, um, it can be challenging to kind of broach the subject. Um, so we're fortunate. Um, and most large hosp pediatric hospitals are fortunate that they do have the palliative care team that they can work with to kind of set up a good plan for their patients. So what kind of professionals make up the palliative care team? Is it more people in the realm of like counseling, social work kind of thing? Or are these more physicians or nurses? Um, I would say at Nationwide, I'm not sure if it's the same at every hospital, but it's um, uh, there's a team of palliative care physicians. Um, they also have like nurse practitioners or APNs that are on the team. Um, but they're generally um, physicians or advanced practitioners who um, have these conversations inpatient with the families. Now, once the families discharge, um, that's kind of out of my realm, and they might get more home health services through palliative care. But I know when we're kind of um, addressing these inpatients, it's mostly um, physicians or those advanced care practitioners. I'm, I'm guessing, too, that social work is involved for more of the outpatient. Um, setting. That makes sense. That makes sense. And so, um, again, it's got to be hard because it's probably just so variable depending on the condition of the child, the prognosis for them. Um, but I I'm curious how often you see uh, families just kind of like rejecting audiologic care because they think, you know, well, not they think, I mean, they they have other priorities at this point. Um, I have to imagine that those conversations are really challenging because our whole role is we know how important, you know, you know, aiding your hearing loss and making decisions for communication are really important. Um, I have to imagine those conversations are pretty challenging. How often are you running into situations like that? Um, I would say that in these kids who have really complex medical um, conditions or life-limiting conditions, I um, and my co-inpatient audiologist, we go into it with the mindset that Hearing is really important, but the most important thing is that this family is able to kind of meet their goals for their baby and um, and get what they want out of it. So it's very different than like an outpatient. Um, if you have a baby, you're screened by a month, you're di diagnosed by 
um, three months amplification by six months, that just kind of goes out the window sometimes um, because it's so important to realize that while that to us is of paramount importance to these families, it's just not even on their radar and you really have to respect that. So um, I wouldn't say for these really complicated kids, I would say that it's not uncommon for them to say like, we don't want to do audiologic follow-up. We just want to get our baby home and enjoy them. And for that, we are more than supportive. I would never push or, or try to convince them otherwise because I'm not in that situation. And um, I just have to support the family's goals um, there. It's, it's a totally different world. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like it. I'm curious what other, um, for clinicians who maybe don't regularly work with this population, um, what kind of skills do you think they need to uh, come into this world with, you know, prior to even considering, you know, starting to consult on these cases or work with an inpatient population? Um, what kind of skills are really important uh, in, in that kind of clinician? I think um, one of the most important skills is flexibility. Um, like Holly was saying, like, we love one, three, six, we love one, two, three. Um, but when dealing with these patients, it's important to become creative and become flexible. Um, we're all, we all love evidence-based practice, but um, there's a time and a place for evidence-based practice. And with these patients, um, it's, you're more there, I think, to listen and to hear, what, again, like the, pa- the family's uh, goal for their, for their patient, for their child, um, and sometimes when you don't, when you're not providing that evidence-based practice and you're hearing the parent out and you're agreeing with them and you're giving them the support they need, um, that does so much more wonder. You develop such a better trust and relationship with the family as opposed to saying, oh no, I have to do the screening now. This is, this is, this is the law. I have to, this, this, this. Um, it's really uh, paramount to remain flexible, I think. That's great. I'm curious too, um, I guess when it comes to inpatient, I'm I'm assuming there's a lot of clinicians out there who have maybe never provided inpatient care before. Um, if either one of you would be willing to share just a little bit about what that looks like. Are you doing your hearing evaluations at bedside? Do you guys have a booth in your hospital that you, know, you walk your patients down to or wheel them down to if needed? Um, if you wouldn't mind describing that kind of process, I'm sure there's a lot of listeners out there who'd be curious as to what that looks like. Um, sure, yeah. So we spend a lot of time in the NICU. Um, Nationwide has one of the largest NICUs in the country. So we're responsible for all the newborn hearing screenings um, in the NICU. And then of course, if a baby refers their hearing screen, we do the diagnostic um, ABRs at bedside. Um, And then outside of the NICU, we do a lot of hearing testing um, for like our HEMOC patients who are getting ototoxic meds um, or our cystic fibrosis patients who are getting ototoxic meds. Um, and we do, um, also just kind of general consults for like our, um, rehab patients who have been through a trauma and need, um, an assessment of their hearing, um, or, you know, a non-accidental trauma or something like that. So, um, behavioral testing can be done at bedside if obviously if the kid is older and able to participate, um, if the child needs VRA, um, or would get too distracted in the room, we can bring them. We have a um, it's a pseudo inpatient booth. It's kind of halfway between the outpatient building and the inpatient building. So we're able to take them to that. Um, and then all of our ABR equipment is on carts so we can wheel it to bedside or to procedure center or, um, wherever we need to. So, so it sounds like similarly to providing palliative care, being an inpatient requires a lot of flexibility. There's a lot of, (laughs) 
mobility, whereas clinicians might be used to their equipment all being very stationary. It sounds like the opposite is true for y'all. It's you're probably always trying to find your ABR cart. Where did it go? <laughs> yes, definitely. It's we're kind of all over the place. And and the one thing I really like about it is no day looks the same. So I don't always have an eight o'clock eval and a ten o'clock ABR or whatever. It just each day is so variable. So you might have sedate many sedateds in the day, or you might be in the NICU all day, or you know, um, you're kind of just all over the place, um, going where the consults come from. So makes sense. It's a lot of, it's a lot of, uh, stress keeping up with all of it, but I'm sure it's really <laughs> rewarding too. Um, so kind of getting to, uh, the article you guys, uh, published in the hearing journal, um, it was mostly on, I want to get the word, was it service delivery models or clinical care pathways maybe? Yep. Yep. Clinical pathways. Would you mind breaking those down a little bit? So for people who are, um, maybe currently provide currently on a, you know, uh, sorry, currently providing audiologic care for a child who's receiving palliative care. It's kind of, you made that clarification earlier and I think it's helpful, but it's hard for me to (laughs) not get those mixed up. Uh, so when we're thinking of providing audiologic services for a child receiving palliative care, it sounds like you all have some proposed clinical pathways for ways audiologists should, should approach that. So whether it's someone who currently works with this population or is considering a job here, or maybe they're a student who's just really interested in being in an inpatient setting, uh, would you mind breaking those down for us? Yeah, definitely. Um, so we had three clinical pathways that we proposed for this patient population. Um, the first being watch and wait. Um, as the title explains, it's not moving forward with evaluation and or treatment, um, rather monitoring the child as they progress through their uh, medical treatment. Um, Second would be audiologic intervention with hesitation, um, which is appropriate audiologic intervention, but with the alteration of best practice or those best practice timelines and recommendations. And then our third clinical pathway is, again, typical audiologic intervention. So moving forward with best practice by both assessing hearing sensitivity and then rehabilitation on a standard timeline. Okay, so that's great. I'm hoping we'll be able to um, break those down even a little bit more specifically. I'd love to hear some specific cases for those. But I'm curious how you guys uh, ended up with these clinical pathways. Um, So like Holly was stating earlier, we did work um, together and collaboratively with Um, one of the physicians, one of the docs on the palliative care team. Um, As you can imagine, um, there is very little to no research on palliative care and audiology. Um, So um, a lot of it is based on personal experience um, and as well as with palliative care's input on how best to move forward and how best to navigate these patients. That's great. I'm curious what um, future research in this space looks like for you. Um, where do you all see the research going? Because I, I agree, I tried to do a little bit of digging before our conversation, and there just isn't very much at all. So uh, what, what kind of big questions do you all have when it comes to the audiologist role in, in uh, palliative care? I was just going to say, I think it would be really cool, like down the line, um, if we were able to take a focused look at um, audio, like pediatric audiology and palliative care to see over the course of a year, how many patients are choosing which pathway and are we able to follow them to see what their outcomes are to determine like, um, is that pathway the best for that family or what was their experience? Maybe even like a survey, what was their experience with um, the pathway that they chose in regards to their audiologic care? Um, There's just no data to be found. So I think it would be important to kind of, to start with gathering some data just regarding the, the different pathways and 
um, what the efficacy of those pathways are with, with actual patients and families. Um, again, research is definitely hard with this patient population as well. Um, as you can imagine, attrition rates, um, just because due to the life, expense, life expectancy of some of these patients, um, it's really hard to get uh, longitudinal, longitudinal outcomes on these patients. Um, so there's a few bumps and yeah. uh, issues with that. Um, but then there are a lot of different angles you can go at, such as counseling techniques. I mean, there's a lot of good research on counseling and audiology, but there's never always going to be one good way for every patient or every family. So um, it'll be interesting to see how things go Absolutely. moving forward. Would you all mind breaking down a little bit more each of those? Um, the, sorry, I'm, my brain is already blanking. Care pathways. <laughs> <laughs> clinical yeah. pathways yeah, uh, yeah maybe either whether it's like a specific case you've had with one of the pathways or just like a little bit more of a breakdown of how, what that might actually look like in practice of course do you want me to go i'll go with the first one holly and then you can do the second one and... sure all righty um so watch and wait um i mean it's it's we run i run it into a few times where um you just go in for the newborn hearing screening and now is not the time um there's uh, inpatient is pretty good on monitoring vitals. Um, when is it an appropriate time to do a newborn hearing screening and when it's not? Um, so, of course, they're monitoring. Is the baby healthy enough? Is now a good time to do it? Um, I've had a patient where they just refused to do the newborn hearing screening. Um, they were sent on palliative care, and their, their goal is just to take their baby home. Um, so we deferred the screening and any follow-up testing. And kind of going off of the second pathway intervention with hesitation, I feel like we run into this fairly often as well, too. This would be, um, again, another NICU example. Um, but like if a baby referred their newborn hearing screen and but has a lot of medical um, concerns going on, just a lot of balls in the air, um, we might wait um, to do the follow-up diagnostic testing until the family is at a place where they're ready to kind of go down that pathway. So the family is saying, yeah, this is important to us and we know it's important to get this information, but now is not the time because we are dealing with kind of bigger, um, bigger issues. So this would be um, intervention because we kind of initiated that audiologic process, but um, hesitation in that we're not following that typical pathway of, referred newborn hearing screen, automatic diagnostic, let's fit them with hearing yeah. aids, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and then the third is typical audiologic intervention. Um, so just fo following best practice and best timelines, diagnosing hearing loss, and then recommending appropriate rehabilitation based on that diagnosis. So such as, I mean, it's common for us to see a hemoc kid, ototoxic hearing loss, and then uh, subsequently fit with bilateral hearing aids. Sure. That makes sense. That makes sense. Thank you guys for breaking that down. That's really helpful. Um, and I think it's helpful to, for listeners out there to like start to picture kind of what this role actually looks like and what kind of, you know, if you're in the moment trying to work with a family to develop a plan, I mean, oftentimes they don't know the impact that, you know, unaided hearing loss can have on later <laughs> communication because at that time, they're not focused on later communication. They're focused on, you know, current health. Um, so I'm curious in in the experience that each of you have had, um, how much of, you know, prior knowledge of different medical conditions and things like that, how much does that come into play when it comes to counseling these families? Because I have to imagine that, you know, some conditions, especially some, uh, you know, 
chromosomal syndromes, things like that, you know, has really poor life expectancy. So maybe we don't go too deep into the, here's, you know, what hearing loss can impact if you do have a diagnosis versus families where, you know, maybe their diagnosis is something that you've experienced many times before and the prognosis is a little bit better. I'm curious how you juggle those two things. I have to imagine that's, that's difficult in the moment. Yeah, that can be a little bit challenging. I think that the most important thing is to remember that it always is going to kind of come back to what the family wants and what the family's goals are. So even if I have like a preconceived notion, like, this baby's life expectancy is one year, he doesn't need anything. Like maybe the family wants to know, can he hear me when I'm talking to him? Or um, should I be using more tactile stimulation? So I think it's really important to kind of go into it um, with the offer that this is a test that we do. Um, It's very standard in all newborn babies. Um, We do have the buy-in of the medical team. So sometimes if Um, you know, the attending physician or the nurse practitioner that follows this baby closely has a more um, connected relationship with the family, they might broach the subject of, how are you feeling about the hearing screen? You know, is this something that um, you want before you discharge home on hospice or palliative care? Um, So that that helps as well. But I've been surprised before where babies that I know have um, a very life limiting um, condition. The families want that information and they want that knowledge. And um, sure. if if the baby passes the hearing screen, they're just so happy. On the flip side, if they don't, then you just hate to be the one to give that news. But it is a tough um, kind of tightrope to walk because you want to make sure they have the options, but you also don't want to just add kind of one more thing for the family to um you know, have to worry about or stress about. So, um, yeah, I think that I, I kind of got off track there. <laughs> no, no, I feel like that, that, that really helped answer it. And I think that was really specific. And I think that's also a good reminder that it's, it's, you're juggling a lot of different things there with each of these families and it's never going to be a clear cut answer for any of them. But I think it is helpful to know, you know, as much knowledge as you might have about some of these conditions, there can always be surprises there. So it might not be a good idea to always rely on um, previous experience. Speaking of uh, some of the more complex medical conditions you all see, what are some of the professionals you all work with? Who do you really rely on? Uh, You know, I know there's probably a lot of people involved. So, you know, any of the professionals involved uh, is, of course, interesting. But I'm curious who you really work closely with, especially for these children who are on palliative care. Um, I think the main would definitely be kind of the medical team, um, which would be the attending physician, the nurse practitioner. Um, They have a social worker. Um, And then all of these patients, um, most of these patients will also have um, members of clinical therapy. So an occupational therapist and a physical therapist that really work with these patients more frequently. So they kind of have a better understanding of um, what the patient's able to do or not do or kind of how the family is dealing with um, all this information, how involved the family is. So um, we do work with a lot of different professionals in that um, setting. And it's not uncommon for someone I've never even met or um, or is totally new to me to reach out and be like, hey, what's going on with this hearing stuff? So it's always cool to get to work with new physicians or practitioners um, to kind of have those conversations. For children who um, discharge out of the hospital, do you all provide any outpatient care or what does that continuity of care look like if you know they're going to, you know, 
maybe they come to to nationwide and they live really far away, but they needed that important care at an early age. Uh, how does that continuum work for you all when it comes to working with outside audiologists? We uh, we absolutely have many off sites and we see patients in outpatient clinics. Um, if the family does live really far away, we have um, patients who kind of fly from all over the country for one of our specialty NICU units. So we have patients who come from California and Oregon all the way to Ohio. So um, obviously they're not going to be following up locally after discharge, um, but we make sure to connect them with facilities um, nearby their home um, and give them a copy of all their reports and all their kind of audiologic um, history so that they know once they go home, if this is something they're going to continue to um, pursue or, you know, they're on that pathway, this is kind of what their next step need to be. This is who they call to schedule this appointment. Um, so we really try to make sure to give them all that information. So, you know, if you go home with a medically complex kid, the last thing you want to do is spend hours trying to figure out where am I going and what do I need and where's my results from nationwide. So, we try to sure. give it to them in a packet just to make it as um, as simple as possible so they can take it to their new facility and um, and give the um, parents our contact information as well in case their new audiologist has any additional questions about the care that the care pathway they had. Yeah, that makes total sense. Um, and I think it's really helpful to have all of the information organized in that way. Um, as someone who works a lot with pediatrics, but I don't have too many children who receive palliative care, I know that, you know, there's a lot of conditions and things out there that I'm not even familiar with. And so, you know, having the information organized in that way would be really helpful and having a connection with audiologists like yourself would be great. Let's say there is someone in that situation who gets a referral for a child who is receiving palliative care and they don't have anyone else on their caseload who's receiving palliative care. What do you feel like is some of the most important things for that kind of clinician to know? I think it all really just goes back to, um, again, the flexibility and really the need to really uh, be creative when working with this patient population. Um, a lot of the times they're, they're medically complex. I mean, for example, um, it's pretty common that I'll have a patient with a mixed hearing loss or a conductive hearing loss who needs bilateral Bajas, but they're vent and traked. And so they're mostly supine and they're laying on their back. Um, so we can't, I can't, have them wearing two Bajas on. Um, so best case scenario, when they're laying on their back, I have to have them wearing the Baja uh, with a, a front forehead placement. Um, so it's just really, again, being creative with that patient population and being understanding. Is, is data logging going to be wonderful? Probably not. Uh, because again, what we're dealing with really is yeah. kind of that <laughs> um, the quality of life and what their needs are in that moment. Again, with the patient who's bent and traked, um, they most likely have a few other things going on. Um, so um, again, I, in my personal experience, I've gotten so much further with families where I've acknowledged that, hey, this is not easy. Data logging is not great. And I understand that. And I see that you're trying. Just keep on doing what you're doing. Um, I've been able to just develop such good relationships with parents when you get down to their level. Because if I'm seen as a professional who's up on his high chair saying data logging needs to be 10 hours a day um, if we want to reach our speech and language goals, if we really want to get the most out of these devices, um, we're just kind of backtracking and we're kind of not really doing what we're supposed to be doing, which is being a support for that family. 
Wow, that's that's really great. I think that's a great reminder. You you guys mentioned it earlier with the how how much we emphasize evidence based practice, how much we emphasize one three six, and with these kinds of families, that just isn't really possible sometimes. And I think the same idea when it comes to fittings, uh, hearing aid fittings, and when it comes to data logging, I think that's a really great reminder that the flexibility is key, um, and that this family might have completely different priorities than what we would typically see with a with a pediatric patient. Um, so that was great, Holly. Did did you have anything else you would add to that? Any any um, any information or skills or recommendations you would give for a clinician who's newly working with this population? Um, yeah, actually, I think the most important thing is just to be as understanding as possible. Um, we with these medically complex patients, usually it's a great effort on the family's part to make it to these appointments to get their complicated child in the car and drive the distance and um, and and they're trying like Haas said they're just trying their best so if they're late or they can't make an appointment or they need to reschedule i just think our understanding and grace is so important for these families because again hearing isn't the number one thing on their mind they're trying and <laughs> we just have to kind of um work with them and and two through the past couple of years with the pandemic obviously we've seen the rise of telehealth services and um, I've heard time and time again what a blessing these these kind of appointments can be for families who have like troubleshooting issues or um, things like that to not have to drag their kiddo um, to the clinic for things like um, that can be done over telehealth. So just being creative with the appointment type, being gracious with um, the struggles that the family have. And like Haas said, like he hit the nail on the head when you just get down to the family's level and you realize that. The, they've got a lot going on and you're just there to um, support them the best that you can. That's great. That's great. I, I'm curious kind of on the flip side of that, other than the obvious, like the opposite of your answers. <laughs> I'm curious <laughs> if there's any like missteps or, you know, common issues. Maybe you guys have seen if you've supervised students before where uh, like things I can imagine. I hope this doesn't happen, but I'm sure it does because we're all human. But, you know, um, making like a uh, an off color comment about a diagnosis or, you know, just missteps you've seen with clinicians who work in this space and things for maybe people to avoid. Because um, it is such, you've mentioned it's a tightrope. These are delicate conversations. Um, any, anything come to mind there? Just uh, missteps to avoid? Yeah, um, I think one of my favorite things I always think about, um, so it's so common you're going to have a patient, a kid with um, 30 things on their problem list. And my number one thing is never judge a child by their problem list. Because like we were talking about earlier, um, you really know what you're, you're not getting into, especially if you've never met this child before. Because um, you've, you've seen miraculous things happen with a child with a problem list that's two pages long. Um, unconscious bias is very hot. It's, it's there and it's really, um, it's very easy to forget about it. I think, um, it, it, not really just with palliative care, but like autism and other be social behavioral issues. Some children have, um, some providers will have that unconscious bias where, oh, this is going to be the outcome. This is what's going to happen. But, um, it's really imperative to really overcome that bias and go in with that fresh mind. Um, people t like to tell me that I'm overly optimistic and positive, which I am, um, because that's the goal of all this, isn't it? <laughs> I want to help every child I can to the best of my ability. 
regardless if their problem list is zero or if there's 35 things on their problem list. Yeah, I think that's awesome. Um, Haas, we definitely um, kind of run into that regularly where kids can be judged by their problem list and not by their actual cells. Um, and I feel like on the inpatient side of things too, we get judgments a lot of time from um, other medical providers. So maybe a nurse or um, a PCA who has the patient and um, the family is on board for, you know, proceeding with audiologic management, they want to do hearing aids and we'll say, we'll have um, nurses say like, what's the point? Like, why are we doing all this? This seems like really overkill. They just, um, they don't understand the importance and the, the family is on board. So we really need to get like the patient's, um, you know, nurses and medical team on board too. So, um, so we just never want to say like, there's no point in doing this if your child has a life limiting diagnosis because it's important to the family if they've chosen this route. So um, trying to mitigate those negative, um, you know, words from other providers. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I, as, as unfortunate as it is, I can definitely see how that comes into play. I mean, we see that happen, you know, with adults and children, with people not really understanding or appreciating audiologic care. And I can imagine when the stakes are really high that other professionals might want to brush it to the side. But when a family really wants, you know, their child to hear them sing a song, you know, in these early, in these, you know, the stage of their life, like I can see how those kinds of priorities would pop up for families and how we have to advocate for them, not only when it comes to the school system and, you know, family members, when we think of advocacy, but also to the other professionals that might be seeing this child. I think that's a really helpful reminder. I'm curious what each of you would say. I mean, I know there's got to be a lot of things that are challenging about this job, but what is probably the most challenging aspect of it for you? Um, <laughs> I think that it can be really rewarding, but it can also, I think, for, at least for me, one of the most challenging things is um, getting other providers, like medical providers, to understand the importance of what we're doing. Because we can explain it to families and we can respect their feedback that they want to pursue or they don't want to pursue, and that's fine. But um, it can be really challenging to kind of convince medical providers um, why this is important, why we're doing this on these, um, these complicated cases. And, and that hearing is important. Like we all hear, um, like that, that is one of the kind of the fundamental, um, things that one of our fundamental senses. And so to try to explain that to, to a nurse or another provider, um, and get them on board, that can be really difficult sometimes. I absolutely agree. Um, I don't really think the difficulty lies within within the audiologic care, like diagnosis and rehab recommendation isn't the difficult part. Um, It's really managing those relationships outside of the family and within. Um, A lot of these families, they're tired, um, they're exhausted. They've They've seen five other providers before you or the same day. You're their sixth appointment. They're, we're usually the last of the day. The child's zonked <laughs> out. He's so, they're so tired. Um, so um, a lot of it's building that rapport um, because, again, that family is going through a lot uh, emotionally. Um, and like Holly said, just to even get to the hospital sometimes, if it's an outpatient appointment, is a, is a whole production. 
Um, and I, I think the hardest part about navigating all this is just ensuring that you're giving the parent or the family what they need. I think both of those are really great reminders. Um, and I think it's really insightful to hear kind of what those challenges are. And honestly, like, I feel like if someone who wasn't in this space, they would say like, oh, it must be really hard to work with children who are really sick. And I know that has to be extremely challenging, but just to think that the day-to-day grind is more against people not understanding how important this work is, I feel like that would be really draining. So um, I appreciate you all sharing that. Okay. So so with giving you an opportunity to flip it around though, uh, what do you think is the most rewarding aspect of working uh, with children who are receiving palliative care? Um, For me, I think it is being able to give these families good news or to give them hope that their child, though though they might have a life-limiting condition, they might only be around for a couple months or a couple years, they have access to um, their parents' voices, they have access to hear their brother and sister. Um, So it's, it's able to take kind of, you know, something that was really disappointing or devastating with the hearing loss, but let them know that like they can hear you, they can hear you singing to them, they can hear you tell them I love you and giving them giving them that kind of peace or that knowledge. I love that. Um, I think the most rewarding part for me um, is really just the rapport that I develop with these families. Um, so like I was, as I was talking earlier, like a lot of these times the data logging is poor, we're not really utilizing the device, but the parent still shows up and still does their part. Um, And I think I've made such great connections when I say there's a time and a place when it's now we should be pushing this. And when I say this is not the time for this, this is not the time for the hearing aid, this is not the time for um, the Baja, um, you just develop this relationship and it's just, you just become, I don't know, even know how to explain it. It's just rewarding in a different way. Um, that you're able to be there for that family. And again, you're just there chatting um, just about their day-to-day, just getting to know them. And just, because again, that parent is going through so much um, emotional trauma, social trauma, like it's a lot to unpack. And as audiologists, we really have a unique perspective because I'm in an appointment with an hour. I have an hour to chat with you. I have an hour to learn about you and to maybe guide you in different areas get social work involved, see how I can help you other than audiologically, um, which is, I think, such a cool, another cool reason why being an audiologist is so wonderful. That's great. That's great. And I I think that's a really great story. And I I love this idea that we sometimes can be the connection to these other fields and people not might not even realize they need other supports. Um, you know, when we're making referrals to physical therapy and occupational therapy and social work, um, I think that's that's a great reminder of how broad our role can really be. The this kind of like series we're doing on the podcast is just the different, it's called the full scope of audiology, but the thought is like, you know, we take on a lot of different roles with one, you know, name in terms of audiologist. Um, and I think all of this information about palliative care is great. And it's just a reminder that sometimes we are that go between for a family to, uh, another service provider that they really need, um, care from. So that's, that's another great connection to that. I appreciate it. So I wanted to ask, I wasn't sure if you wanted to tie these in, um, specifically to any of the clinical pathways? If not, that's okay. I'm just curious if there are any cases or um, uh, patients that you've worked with that come to mind when you really are trying to explain to someone what you do when it comes to working with children who receive palliative care. Um, if, if there's anything you'd, you, uh, any stories or any cases you want to share from that? 
I will say I've had a lot of experience working with patients who um, we have a specialty BPD unit, so bronchopulmonary dysplasia, which is um, like chronic lung disease babies. Um, a lot of these babies are trached to invent, um, and they're in the NICU for maybe the first year or two years of their life. So they're kind of long haul babies. Um, and many of them receive these palliative care services, um, not just for kind of their goals of care, but also pain management and, um, you know, just kind of looking at the child as a whole. So um, I will say that I've had, because these children are so complicated, most of them are very premature babies born at, you know, 22, 23 weeks, um, who have a laundry list of problems that have arisen over their um, year of life. Um, so a lot of times we'll, we do kind of delay doing testing on these patients until they're medically stable. So we might not even see them for the first time until they're eight or nine or 10 months old. Um, and a lot of them end up not passing hearing screens, um, doing diagnostic testing. A lot of them have kind of um, fluctuating hearing losses. Um, and so these families have come from all over the country. They're basically living in the hospital with their babies. They're very complex babies. And so I feel like a lot of those patients fall into that clinical um, pathway to the intervention with hesitation because the families are really anxious to know, like, can my baby hear? We're working on all these developmental therapies in conjunction with their um, medical treatment, their respiratory needs. Um, but we're also working on like sitting up and and following um, gaze and social cues. So a lot of these families want to know, can my baby hear? If not, what, what is our plan for it? So um, a lot of these kids, because they do have such a fluctuating hearing loss, we've kind of ended up doing this intervention with hesitation where we're monitoring their hearing with um, kind of serial diagnostic ABRs. Um, because they're not ready to jump into um, like a hearing aid. The family is not at that point. Their hearing is fluctuating. Um, and so looking at their goals of care, they're interested to know what the hearing is, but um, maybe less so um, anxious to kind of jump into um, amplification. But then on the flip side, we have babies on that unit where after the first ABR, mom wanted to um, fit with a Baja and um, we followed him through his whole stay there and his hearing eventually um, improved and he was able to discharge um, home back to California actually um, and eventually no longer need the Baja. So um, we kind of see both both flip sides of that coin. Again, it all coming back to how motivated the parents are and what they see as kind of the long-term goals for their child. That makes sense. I'm curious. Uh, I have to imagine that babies who spend a lot of time like these, you know, months and months in the NICU are far more likely to have a conductive hearing loss if they're spending a lot of time laying down and you know issues like that. So my assumption is you guys probably have to fit a lot of Bajas in situations like this. Um, I'm curious, like how the role of ENT comes into play. Do you guys see a lot of, you know, flat temps and uh, 
a lot of like maybe temporary Bajas for these situations. And how does that normally go with babies who might be, you know, they spend a lot of their day laying in their crib um, and, you know, counseling families with that. It's pretty different from how I would have to counsel a family with a soft band Baja because, you know, their child's rolling around or pulling it off their head. Um, what, what does either that counseling look like or that collaboration with ENT care? Yeah, I feel like that could be a whole nother podcast episode. <laughs> <laughs> good point, good point. Um, so we actually have done a couple studies on this population with um, bronchopulmonary dysplasia because they do have this chronic fluctuating hearing loss, whether it's mixed or sensory neural or conductive. Um, so a lot of these patients, we will just more closely monitor with ABRs. Um, but some families do opt to go ahead and um, fit with amplification with just close monitoring so we can, you know, turn down the amplification if it's um, too much or if their hearing is improving. Um, I would say most of these kids um, have, they're just like very swollen. They have a lot of edema. So, um, so their ear canals are very stenotic. Um, we do consult ENT pretty regularly on these kids, but I would say a lot of the times ENT is not even able to visualize the eardrum because of the, the edema, the facial edema, and then, um, you know, kind of translating into ear canal edema. So I'm sure part of their kind of fluctuating hearing loss definitely is that, um, that swelling causing this kind of stenotic canal on top of who knows what else in the middle ear is going on. So um, we're definitely working with ENT pretty closely. Um, and they know when they get a consult for a kid on that unit that is not trach related, but hearing related, that likely, likely they probably won't be able to see anything. <laughs> <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I'm curious, uh, Jacinto, if you had any um, specific cases that come to mind or patients that you've interacted with that you feel like kind of represent what it means to work in uh, with children with palliative care. Oh, Definitely. Um, I think one of my favorites is always, um, again, most of these, most of the ones I've interacted with were definitely in the audiologic intervention with hesitation. Um, so one of my favorite stories I remember, I think it was a fourth, when I was a fourth year at Nationwide, um, and um, it was this mom, this child is non-ambulatory, non-verbal, just kind of the whole shebang, has bilateral, moderate sensory neural hearing loss. Um, and mom was just kind of at her wit's end, because um, I think we've all run into the kids, especially when they're in those um, wheelchairs with the headboards that they'll constantly thrash and move their head, constantly knocking their hearing aids out. Mom, mom is absolutely wonderful. She's a CEO or C, some, some very, very high-powered businesswoman, um, but she still gives it her all for her, for her child. She was doing all this ADA stuff, and it's wonderful, and it's wonderful. But And she, she's like, I keep doing it. I keep putting them on. I keep putting them on. Um, and you can just tell she's exhausted. And um, my favorite, that was always my favorite interview question is like, when did you realize you were doing something, but you weren't providing audiologic care? In that moment, um, it's, hey, mom, let's kind of take a few steps back. Um, yes, we went ahead and fit her, but maybe now is not the best time for her because now I think the best time is let that mom enjoy a cup of coffee in the morning as opposed to trying to force these aids on her child who... Um, clearly isn't tolerating them and clearly isn't succeeding at the moment. Um, so I, th I, fi I find it a lot with my patients that will kind of backtrack um, that, yes, we fit them and we're kind of stagnant right now. Um, and that's a okay. 
And that's where the flexibility and the creativity really comes in um, with this patient population and just realizing this is this is the best case scenario, not the best case scenario, but this is best case for this patient right now and for this family right now. You're not the one who has to sure. go home and put all this effort into it. That mom does. Yeah, and how reassuring for that parent too, for the professional to be the one to say, hey, it's okay to take a breath. It's yes, okay exactly. to relax. Is there... They're expecting you to be the one to jump down their throat, you know, mm-hmm. that they're not following instructions perfectly. So I, th- I think that's a really, that's a helpful reminder for us that, you know, not only are our patients really important, but their families are people too. Um, and the way that we communicate with them can sometimes be really, really important. Um, Holly, did you have any specific cases that came to mind? Um, for the hesitation Just- or the, sorry. Yeah, sure. Just anything like kind of more related to your palliative, you know, providing audiologic care for children who are receiving palliative services. If there's anything that kind of encapsulate that encapsulates that experience for you, or one that's really memorable. Um, I have a couple. Um, we had um, we've had a couple kind of leaving the NICU um, and going to the HEMOC unit. We've had a couple kids on that floor that we followed um, over time and. Um, they were more the typical intervention because they were generally older kids um, who then lost their hearing due to chemotherapy treatment. Um, And the families were very motivated to provide that consistent access to sound, especially because these kids were getting lots of treatment. They were meeting lots of new people every day. They had a lot going on. um, And so their families wanted them to be able to kind of be involved in their care. and those cases can be really hard because not all of those HEMOC um, patients survive. Um, and so we, we do lose those kids from time to time, but, um, but it, it is, it's good and reassuring to know that like, while they were still here, um, the family felt like they were able to provide them the access that they needed and, and that they were doing everything possible um, to support their kiddo during that time and to support their kiddo being actively involved in their care during that, you know, during those last months or um, weeks or whatever. So, Yeah, that has to be super challenging. Um, but to be, you know, to be able to support that family in those kinds of moments, they need somebody who's on their team in those kinds of times. So it sounds really important, but it does sound pretty, pretty heart wrenching too. Yeah, it definitely can be challenging. <laughs> Um, we're kind of coming up on the end of our time here. It's like flown by so fast, which is pretty insane. Um, <laughs> but as we're as we're starting to wrap things up a little bit, I was curious if we could talk. Uh, we haven't really talked too much in this podcast about more inpatient care, and I think you're right. Like that would be a great conversation for another time. So uh, keep me in mind in case you guys are interested. Um, but when it comes to some of the challenges you all have faced when it comes to working um, inpatient, I'm curious. Uh, Okay, so like the big things that come to mind for me, fitting a hearing aid, like how in the world does that work? Are you, do you bring them down? Do you have like real ear or something? Or is that a bedside test? Getting an ABR on a child who is trached invented, what in the world do you do there? How is that possible? <laughs> any, any like major uh, like inpatient stories or, or things you'd like to share for those out there who might not have ever been in an inpatient setting? Yeah, I actually have one story that. I'll always remember for the duration of my career as well. Um, he was an, he was a older, he was 20, 22 inpatient um, and just getting so much chemotherapy. 
his hearing dropped dramatically, his word recognition dropped dramatically, um, and he was going to be uh, admitted long term. Um, and so we fit him. Well, we first started with the pocket talker um, just to see if that would help or do anything for him. Absolutely not. It's not 1950 anymore. But we tried. We tried. <laughs> you know, we tried. Um, uh, and we're and Nationwide is so good about it of just like going above and beyond for these patients because um, it's just what we what we want to do and what we have to do and what we pride our pride ourselves on doing. Um, and so I did, I fit him. I was fortunate enough where he was able to come to the outpatient clinic. I fit him with loners. Um, and then he was admitted for quite some time still. And I remember he had some complaints. Uh, he had a, he had his tablet and he had, he was like a 65 year old man. He had all his complaints <laughs> written on a tablet of what he didn't like and what I needed to adjust. Um, and so I ran over with the NOAA link wireless and with the laptop um, and did my best to help him out. So again, it just, um, it's fun. And it's just doing what you can in that moment, I think is what matters most. That is so great. That is so <laughs> great. Um, I would say, yeah, we definitely, um, we have to get creative and um, we do as much at bedside as we can, especially for like our immunocompromised patients. Um, for our trach vent babies, we just have a really good relationship with the um, the medical team. A lot of times they'll be able to give them some sedation at bedside just to kind of hold them over for us to get a diagnostic ABR. Um, or we just try to plan really well with the nurses of when the baby will sleep. Maybe they're worn out from therapy, so we run down. Um, the good thing about inpatient is you have a lot of flexibility because they're not going home tomorrow generally <laughs> so if you get half an avr today and you need to go back tomorrow you can so <laughs> we do have that luxury versus you know an outpatient avr appointment where they're like they're leaving so you have to get what you can um and they're maybe, late showed up right. awake or they yeah, showed up exactly. asleep already and yeah exactly. that's that's me in the outpatient setting that's what i'm struggling <laughs> through um but yeah those exactly. those are great those are great I'd love to have you guys back to talk more things, you know, all things inpatient audiology. Uh, we have a lot of listeners who are students who are just really intrigued by all of the different, you know, settings that you can work clinically. And I think inpatient is one of the one of the most exciting and just diverse uh, experiences you can have. So uh, thank you both again so, so much for coming on to talk about palliative care. I know it's a heavy topic, but you all have made it really fun and really interesting um, so I'm really grateful for that. If there's anyone out there who's listening who had um, further questions for y'all or, uh, you know, had had something specific that they wanted to comment on, what would be the best way to get in touch? Um, probably the easiest way would be to just reach out to me via email. Um, my email address is holly, um, H-O-L-L-Y dot girth, G-E-R-T-H at nationwidechildrens.org. And I'd be happy to answer any other questions. Yeah, yeah. Um, same here. Awesome. Email email would be best. Uh, mine is Jacinto, J-A-C-I-N-T-O dot Fragoso, F-R-A-G-O-S-O at nationwidechildrens.org. Also the, the, the longest email addresses in the world. So sorry about that. Yeah. <laughs> Nationwidechildrens.org. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot in there. Well, yeah. uh, thank you all so much. Y'all have so much great information. I'm really appreciative for the work you're doing. We're excited to see what other, uh, you know, uh, research you all come out with when it comes to addressing palliative care. 
um, and the audiologist role in that. So thank you again for making us uh, more understanding and, you know, uh, more clinically adept with this population. We're just grateful for your work. Thank you so much for having us. I had a really great time. Me too. Thank you for the opportunity.